Roy Cohen and Rupert Murdoch had a very unlikely alliance. The brash Washington insider and the Australian newspaper king seemingly had very little in common, but their collaboration would shape the world for decades to come. Cohen was the diminutive, self-loathing, gay political figure who imbued corruption. He gained notoriety on a national level as the right-hand man of the anti-communist crusader Wisconsin Senator Joseph McCarthy. Their Un-American Activities Committee destroyed the lives of many artists and entertainers under the banner of fighting communism. Flash forward 72 years later, and Murdoch's Fox News's relentless and endless prosecution of libs and wokeness, not to mention the endless parade of non-stop lies on that network, is the modern-day successor of McCarthyism. The stakes are far higher today, of course. Democracy itself is on the line. But the strategy? That's the same. Divide and conquer. Roy Cohen had many photographs with celebrities, but one was held in pride of place on Cohen's desk. It's a photograph of Cohen introducing President Ronald Reagan to Rupert Murdoch in 1983. It was the start of an alliance between the three men in which politics, media, the mob, and influence collided. David L. Marcus spent the last year of Roy Cohen's life shadowing Cohen for a Vanity Fair article he was writing. It's the kind of access that's really hard to get, unless you're Cohen's cousin, and David L. Marcus was Cohen's cousin. He's our guest tonight. Roy Cohen was an evil genius. He was a mover and shaker like we'll never see again in the United States or most countries. He also, unfortunately, was my cousin, mm. my dad's cousin. He was someone who influenced U.S. policy for decades. There's been nothing like it for years, and I don't think there ever will be. He meddled with organized crime, the Catholic Church, Washington, the FBI, and of course, we wrote our media moguls. But the important part of my story is that Roy was my father's first cousin. My father, Warden, hated him and wouldn't speak to him. And I just want to be really clear about this. So I did talk to Roy. I interviewed Roy. I hung out with Roy. I had no love for Roy, for his shenanigans, for his crimes. But what you're referring to is a magazine story, a Vanity Fair story I wrote about shadowing him for the last year of his life and watching everything fall apart. I did not feel bad for Roy by any means, but I'm fascinated by these characters who rise and rise and frankly get too close to the sun and ultimately get scalded, get burned, as Roy did, as I think Donald Trump is going to do, but Murdoch amazingly has avoided that. It's interesting for you to tell us who he was, because he certainly seemed like a connector of many worlds. You know, in my mind, he was a part of the mob, certainly. He was part of this incredible world in the 1980s, which of these rich, elite New Yorkers who were living this fantastic life, and also connected to politics and power. That's a very alluring nexus to be in the middle of, and yet he was able to achieve it. So regardless of whether you admire his actual actions or his work, the achievement of being in the middle of all of that, triangulating that, if you like, is quite remarkable. I can't think of anybody who had so much influence on U.S. policy and politics for decades. And Roy was born in New York and lived in Outer Borough. And his father was a judge. And Roy wanted power so much. He wanted, he was the only child and he sat in his parents' dinner table and partook of conversations as if he were an adult. He was a little prince. And by the time he was 
19, he had graduated from Columbia University Law School. He was graduated from law school too young to actually be admitted to the bar. He had to wait for that. And just a few years later, he was on the national scene and he had gone from a proud Democratic family to being what we would now call Republican. He wasn't really alive with the Republican Party yet or conservative or even like a proto and early MAGA person. He went after Julius and Ethel Rosenberg in his early 20s. I think he was 23. A lot of people don't know them. They were accused of being Soviet spies and they were put in the electric chair at Roy's urging. Roy basically had illegal conversations with the judge who sentenced them. Roy basically demanded that they be found guilty and electrocuted. Nobody else was as spies. And really, frankly, what they did was incredibly minor, especially Ethel, if anything at all. And yet Roy got away with that. Roy then went on to be the chief counsel for Joseph McCarthy, who was a really, frankly, stupid, drunk, power-hungry senator in Washington, who found that by bashing the army and by bashing so-called gay influence in the State Department and elsewhere, he could really get headlines and get power until, of course, he got too close to the sun and burned. There's a sense of a man who would do anything for power, but he's not alone. There's certainly a lot of people in, in the world and it certainly exists today. That is their primary focus is power and money. And he might've been a prototype of that, an early prototype of that. Do you fault him for that? Do you fault him for his desire for power? I have a grudging sort of admiration for people who just do that because they are nakedly ambitious. I crave power too. I go to New York and nobody gives me a parking space. Nobody gives me tickets to mm. Yankees games. And Roy was the ultimate power broker for years. Mm. I was in his office many times when he called George Steinbrenner, then the owner of the Yankees. You get incredible seats for his friends. And for my grandma, who was really his beloved Ian, he would make sure he got her amazing stock seats in Broadway shows. And he connected Roger Stone with Ronald Reagan. Mm. He connected Murdoch, who we'll talk about, with Donald Trump. He connected Reagan with the power brokers in New York. That's how things work. I'm not naive. But he also was a lawyer and an advisor to... Fat Tony Salerno, a mafia boss, to a couple of cardinals in, in the Catholic Church in New York. And it goes on and on. He played all sides. Dying of AIDS, when you're considered a proponent of Ronald Reagan's policy of ignoring the disease, what was his position on AIDS? Reiko was gay and openly gay. I say openly because in those days, the media was very circumspect about certain influential people's private lives. I was in his house when there was Basically, orgies were about to go on and things that I, my view is people's private lives, it's their private lives, as long as they're consulting adults, I don't care. But Roy, Roy Cohn espoused something totally different. He was a gay basher. And so you, you miss something, which is before we can get to the AIDS policies, the 80s, in the 1970s, Roy was driving the New York City government to go after gays. He was in the 50s, he was driving the U.S. Foreign Service to root out gays, to closet homosexuals, whatever. He was open. He was gay and everybody around him knew it. We'll talk about J. Edgar Hoover. J. Edgar Hoover was a confirmed bachelor, as they called him in those days. And Joseph McCarthy was too. I don't believe in conspiracies, but there was an orbit of men who appeared to be gay and Roy certainly was gay. And that's fine, except that they were also arch conservatives 
who are gay bashing, and not just gay bashing, they ruined people's lives. People were driven to commit suicide, fathers, because they were outed as gay, whether or not they were, by Roy Cohn and by Joe McCarthy, Senator McCarthy and others. So there was a really evil, despicable tone to what he did before we even get to the AIDS crisis. Yeah, he died in 1986. So a few years earlier, I guess, this picture took place. This is him introducing Rupert Murdoch to Ronald Reagan for the first time. And that's Roy Cohen there on the very right in the second photo. Tell us a little bit about his, if you know, his condition then. Was he already sick at the time or is it before he was diagnosed? And then how, do you know very much about how this happened? How did Roy Cohen get to introduce Rupert Murdoch to Ronald Reagan? Okay, so I believe that second photo is 1983, I think. Um... Reagan and Rupert Murdoch met in person at the White House. But let me back up for a second, if I may. The Reagan-Rupert Murdoch connection actually started before that. Roy Cohn was shamed in Washington in the 50s and came back to New York where anybody else would, would be under a bush, would disappear. But in fact, his power only rose, Roy Cohn's power rose in New York, so much so that he helped Donald Trump, another sort of refugee from the outer boroughs. And this is the important part. Murdoch, I think, he moved to New York in 1976. And this is a time when Roy Cohn was at the apex of his power. And soon after that, Murdoch bought a beloved liberal institution, the New York Post. And New York started page six, which was a sleazy gossip page in the, in, in the New York Post. Now, Roy Cohn was a denizen, was a frequent contributor to Pagex. He represented celebrity clients. He was in the middle of rich people's divorces. He would feed gossip to Page Six, and they, in turn, would feature him a lot. Roy had this crazy antenna, this crazy way of finding people who were on the verge of becoming rich or powerful or making it in society, not good people, by the way, usually, but people. And Roy really tended to Rupert Murdoch in the late 70s when he had held all this power. A call from Roy to somebody would stop a lawsuit. A call from Roy from somebody would stop a newspaper investigation of a mafia in a concrete business. A call from Roy but fear of people. He was not a good lawyer by any means. He's been written about as a great lawyer. That's not true. He was a great connector. He was a great threat maker. He was a great lawsuit initiator. He represented Studio 54. I went with him several times there. It was the hot club where they were money laundering. There was openly cocaine sales. What happened in the men's room, I'm not going to tell you, but it was something for my little teenage eyes. I had rarely <laughs> described the things I saw, and I'm yeah. not going to do that today. You can let your <laughs> run well. What happened in the women's room, I can only guess, but the men's room was quite a seat. But Roy was in the middle of all this stuff, and here was Robert Murdoch, an outsider, a press mogul, media mogul elsewhere, nothing to show in the United States. Roy completely opened the door for this horror that became the Rupert Murdoch we know today. Ronald Reagan was launching his run for the presidency. Ronald Reagan was a really unlikely candidate. And I'm telling you about Reagan because Reagan ultimately, as you implied, as, as you figured from that photo, Reagan gave Murdoch, he bestowed on Murdoch special favors that without those favors, Murdoch would be nothing. He would be the owner of a little money-losing tabloid in New York. He'd be nothing in this country. Reagan was a little known. He was a 
a governor from California, no trajectory, nothing would hint that he would become president of the United States. But Roy fractured the Republican Party in New York. And I won't go into all the details, but basically he gave Reagan an opening to move into New York and to get votes in New York. He connected Roger Stone, who had worked for Richard Nixon. Roger Stone became like a money man for Reagan, raising money, as did Roy in New York. Roy raised millions of dollars for Ronald Reagan. Didn't even know him at first, but he found something simpatico. He liked his kind of arch fake conservatism. Reagan came from Hollywood, had gay friends, but Reagan was anti-gay, anti-abortion. Roy was gay, had friends who had no, woman friends who had abortions, made friends who didn't have abortions, but did everything else. And Roy was the connector with those two. And ultimately he got Rupert Murdoch to take the once liberal post and endorse Reagan in the primary in New York, which was important, and to write favorable stories about Reagan that paved the way for the story of this Reagan-Rupert-Roy triumvirate. Yeah, it's very unusual for an American president to have an alliance with a publisher in the way that Reagan had with Rupert Murdoch. And it was an alliance that was really brokered by your cousin. And there's this one letter, Roy is basically complaining to various people at the White House, including Ed Meese, James Baker, complaining about the fact that Ronald Reagan never attended a requested interview in Boston. It's, yeah. Boston you do. it's not the kind of letter you think you'd write to the president of the United States or any of his staff. There he went and wrote this. So just a couple of paragraphs that really stand out. I had one interest when Tom and I first brought Rupert Murdoch and Governor Reagan together. And that was that at least one major publisher in this country, New York Post, of one million third largest and largest afternoon, New York Magazine, Village Voice, San Antonio Express, yada, yada, would become and remain pro-Reagan. Mr. Murdoch has performed to the limit up through and including to today. I enclosed the editorials from the three New York papers so you can see how the Daily News and New York Times blasted the president's speech and how Murdoch's New York Post gave its whole editorial column to high praise for it. It goes on to say, Mr. Murdoch has been deeply disturbed at what he regards as the failure to stand by some basics in the president's original program, which he believes to be correct. His advice is consistently sought by Mrs. Thatcher and Prime Minister Fraser of Australia, in both of which countries he owns extensive media interests. He is not the kind who is offended when his advice is not taken, but he does appreciate being treated courteously and having at least the same courtesies extended to his Washington reporters as seemed to be heaped upon his opposition. He's hurt by the way the Boston matter was handled, and there is just so much that Tom and I can do. A remarkable insight into the man's brain and his ability to work both sides. Really, he is working both sides in that. He's doing a great job working on Murdoch's behalf and on Reagan's behalf, and somehow I mean, you could see how he'd become a very important person in that relationship. This letter is actually really well written. It's really frustrating to me because most lawyers cannot write a letter that tells a story in a page. He did. And you'll notice, by the way, it says delivered by a hand to the White House, right? So this tells us so much about how things work. Man. Another letter that Roy sent to Reagan was talking about Murdoch. Quote, tempers are so hot that I would wait for things to cool off. Now, that was a subsequent, another time when Roy felt Murdoch had not been treated well enough by the White House. This had an effect, by the way. This is not just some grubby middle-aged person writing to the White House, this went right up the chain of command. Very good point. That's it with Mies, I think, that's signing that. Please do. Reagan and Murdoch did not know each other personally back then, but Reagan's people knew that Murdoch had endorsed Reagan for that election a couple of years before, that Murdoch had openly 
planted his news pages to be pro Reagan. And this kind of ironic and silly was for me because I work for the Boston Globe. And if you read it, I think he calls it the violently liberal or violent, violently democratic Boston Globe. Thank you. That was my employer. Violently anti-Reagan, in fact. Yeah. Later, that was, yeah. yeah, that was my employer. Murdoch had been working for Reagan, but Murdoch was just a publisher of a New York newspaper. We did not, there was no such thing as Fox News then. But what happened after was a chain of events, which was, I think, linked to these letters and certainly linked to Roy's constant badgering Reagan. Murdoch was welcomed to White House soon after. Then, incredibly, the government, our pace, immigration service, and others bent up everything. So two years later, I believe it was, Murdoch became a naturalized citizen. Does that matter? It mattered incredibly back then because it meant then that he was a naturalized citizen. Since he was not a foreigner, he could own a TV station in the United States. He bought a TV station and that led to Fox. That was also just a start of it. Thanks to Roy, you, there were very strict rules then about you couldn't own in the United States, a TV station and a newspaper in the same city. Very sensible rules we had yeah. then. Amazingly, the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, under Reagan's handpicked puppet, Mark Fowler, they did a Murdoch rule. They basically loosen that so that you could have a TV station in New York and the New York Post. Then they went further. They let you own several TV stations. Then they went further. Reagan's people made it so that the fairness doctrine that we had was thrown out the window. The fairness doctrine meant that you get a TV station. It was not like a newspaper. You had special power. There's limited numbers of licenses for TV stations. They were precious. You had to give equal opportunity to different sides of an argument. Made a lot of sense, but they throw that out. And of course, with Murdoch's journalism, which was really propaganda, that was perfect for him. That was the opening for Murdoch to become Murdoch. That was the opening for Fox to become Fox. Yeah, it does seem to me that there would be no Fox News or no even News Corp in the way we know it today if it weren't for Ronald Reagan's easing of those regulations, which it seems to me like he was doing in exchange for this very stuff that Roy Cohn is describing in these letters, this exchange for favorable write-ups in these newspapers. It seems like a bad deal on Reagan's part, but I guess if you're short-sighted about these things and you think you just want to get through your next term, why not make a deal with the devil like that? Do you know if there was anything more to it than that? It's a remarkably lucrative deal for Rupert Murdoch, but was it lucrative for Roy? There's no evidence that I ever saw, and I've followed Roy around for a while, that Murdoch was actually generous to Roy in the way that people are to their connectors, fixers, lawyers, in terms of millions of dollars, in terms of huge payments. Murdoch was a friend of Roy's. Murdoch was a client of Roy's on a small scale, but Roy believed in what a journalist called the favor bank. So, Zeb, you get me tickets to the opera and I'll get you, my friend's private plane, the favor bank. Murdoch's newspaper, the New York Post, covered Roy and his people in a very favorable way, extensively, especially on page six, which everybody turned to in New York. And remember, again, for your younger readers, it's just a newspaper, right? It wasn't Twitter, it wasn't Instagram, it wasn't TikTok, but it was the New York Post and its competition, the Daily News. People went on the subway, they read those at parties, they read those in the weekends. You would go to get together with people in the evening and they would refer to what they saw in page six. 
it sets the agenda for sort of social coverage because there was no social media. And Roy was social media. Roy was the expert at getting things to go viral, although nobody called it that. My days of working as a network producer on morning television in New York, the first thing I did when I got into the office, the very, very first thing I did was page six. It didn't matter what was the headline on the front page of the New York Times. I had to know exactly what was in page six because it did say, it could change your day. So absolutely, that's the kind of thing that people did point to. But you talk about the favor bank behind the scenes of Rupert Murdoch's empire as we were trying to piece it together. Rupert Murdoch was in trouble actually in the 80s in Australia. He was nearing bankruptcy, overstretched himself. He reorganized somehow and it seems like Allen and Company was the company that sort of came on board and he got a new director in uh, Mr. Shulman. There is some speculation that perhaps was a helping hand there from either the Rothschilds or the Israeli intelligence world. That was a lift that they gave Rupert Murdoch so he could start his entree into the United States. And that it would make sense in that regard that Roy Cohn would be one of the people who would help him out in that way. That would not be unprecedented with Roy Cohn. Roy had incredible contacts in the government, in conservative parts of the government. All this stuff is coming out now about Robert Maxwell, right? The opposing publisher, if you will, to, to Rupert Murdoch and what kind of intelligence ties he might have had. What we do know is this, and this is really important, and it, do, it does hint at what could have been going on with Roy and Rupert. Roy Cohn in the 50s was very close to J. Edgar Hoover. When the FBI released very redacted files a few years ago, it was shown that Roy was writing J. Edgar Hoover just as he later wrote Reagan for favors, for do this, you need to know this, for smearing people's names. And J. Edgar Hoover, people don't know probably now, but he was ahead of the FBI for years and he was a very sleazy person. And you think of FBI, we hope they're upstanding and they're impartial. Hasn't really worked out that way. But J. Edgar Hoover was blatantly a political person and anti-communist. But that's the thing that I want to talk about. Murdoch is just like Roy, Murdoch's politics are transactional, right? His beliefs are transactional. It's who's paying him, who's yeah. helping him, who's opening doors for him. And Roy was like that. Roy was a de Democrat by old means, by a name anyway, for years from a Democratic family. And yet he was endorsing Republicans. He was doing underhanded things to destroy Democrats. He was gay, but he was destroying gay people and not just bashing them, as I said, but actually looking at policies and laws that undermine them, ruining their lives. And J. Edgar Hoover, as I said, we, there's a lot of suspicion he was gay, cross-dresser, whenever, all kinds of things that have been alluded to. But these guys, when their intelligence matters, that's cash, right? That's better than gold. The information, Roy always knew that. Roy did not have a dime to his name for most of his adult life. If you really looked at it the way we measure wealth, yeah. And yet, because he did favors for mafiosos, for Yankees owners, for whatever, for Rupert Murdoch, there was always a private jet available. There was always something, private plane available. There was always a house in Mexico waiting for him. And Murdoch, I would believe anything you told me at this point about mm. where Murdoch got his information and who he traded information with. How the hell did he get from being a publisher in Australia and then Britain? And only one news in New York to be a billionaire who's on the side of the Russians, as far as we can tell, yeah. who's Wen Deng, you could more than I do, but there's a lot of interest of where Wen Deng's Chinese interests are, where yeah. her spy interests are. 
Yeah, he's almost definitely a Chinese spy. I've said it out bluntly. Clearly, that's the game that Rupert Murdoch plays. He will find the power brokers in his society. He'll find a way in. If people think that, did Wendy Deng use Rupert Murdoch? It could be that Rupert Murdoch used Wendy Deng because he wanted access to the Chinese market and he knew he could get it through her. And in some ways, I could think of Roy Cohn as the same kind of character, even though he's not necessarily a, an agent or a, a spy of any countries. He was a, enough of a connector that uh, Rupert Murdoch would have used him or vice versa to get what they needed. And symbiotic. You yeah. use me, I use you. Yeah. Don't, as I said, drop down, drop case number one, transactional. It's what you grease my back, I'll grease your back. And with Roy, though, it was about access and it was about fame and it was not about money. With Murdoch, it's about money and it was about power and it was about control of the media, which he got and which we're all suffering from. Interesting little tidbit that I always wonder about. I'm a fan of the HBO series Succession. Right? I do too. And it's loosely based on Murdoch. Yeah. So what is the last name they give that family? Oh, gosh. Logan what? Logan what? Logan Roy. Oh, that's interesting. Good point. I always wonder if they're selling a play on Roy Cohn in some ways, but that's just me. I've known some people in that kind of world, in those kinds of families, and they certainly, that's the way they operate. And many of them do with this sort of patriarchal figures that are just power hungry and wield their power with such complete uh, contempt. So I don't even know if that's, if how loose that is about Rupert Murdoch's world or just about this sort of billionaire class. But the thing about Murdoch, which I'm doing this whole series, is the guy's now engaged in just propaganda. And he's basically just brainwashing the minds of Americans. And he's only nominally an American. So who's he doing it for? And if he's just doing it for the money, there's not that much money in Fox News that you would actually put up all that risk. So there is definitely a component of the money is coming with requests that he operates in a certain way, that he broadcast certain things that are dangerous and untrue, or he's somehow a real agent of a foreign government of some sort, which is using, but maybe he's actually fully committed to them, to cause damage to the United States of America through this propaganda, through this brainwashing. I don't know the answer to that question, but as we travel through some of this stuff, there was a closeness between the CIA and Rupert Murdoch, certainly because of Ronald Reagan, he introduced him to Casey and others. And as you point out with Edgar Hoover there as well, that sort of ended in the 1990s. That romance ended with a hacking scandal in the UK. And then I think he was left looking for a dance partner and he landed up in the East with China and, uh, and with Wendy Deng as his support base there. And that might explain to people a little bit more about where all the money is coming from right now that's keeping that organization afloat, but also where some of this crazy editorial is coming from. It's largely beneficial to China and Russia more than anybody else. For him to keep growing, the U.S. is a limited market for media and everything else. But China, a billion plus people, mm -hmm. Russia, they are playing him, I'm sure of it, and the Middle East. And sure. they're playing him and Jared Kushner. And what does China have? What does Russia have? They have intelligence. They have secrets to offer. They have markets that are closed to anybody who doesn't have connections. And Murdoch is Money. being taken advantage of while he's taking advantage of that. They've been described to me as constructs, these sort of Elon Musk figures that are, you know, not really who they are. They say they're a certain person, but they really are working for somebody. In this case, in Elon Musk's case, probably the Middle East countries like Saudi Arabia or the UAE. In Rupert Murdoch's case, maybe he's taking orders from China. Not that it's completely selfless. It's not like he's working for the Chinese state. He's doing it because he's gaining money. He's just doing what he needs to do to keep the companies afloat and make sure his children get a legacy. But I do think that there's something even deeper and more rooted to this that is an anti-democratic push and that he's part of this alliance. And I see him and Elon Musk 
sitting together the other day at the Super Bowl when I see Jared Kushner being friends with Wendy Dang, all these very close relationships between these sort of power brokers that are vastly anti-democratic. There's something going on that we're beginning to see. I call them the enemies of democracy. And the more we identify them and the more we are able to name them, the easier it's going to be to beat them. 2006, Jared Kushner, really a remarkably unremarkable young man, bought the New York Observer, a mediocre newspaper. But who was his mentor? Who was his guide to turning Jared and the paper conservative, Rupert Murdoch? And then Jared and Ivanka and Murdoch, and then my favorite three, I think, Wendy, would go out to dinner, would hang out all the time. And then even after Wendy and Murdoch split, Two women were friends, Ivanka and Wendy, and Jared and Murdoch were friends. And then, I was just reading this the other day, there's a $300 million nest egg set up for Murdoch's daughters with Wendy. So who's a trustee for that for a while? Ivanka Trump. 2017, all kinds of sexual harassment allegations against Roger Ailes and Bill O'Reilly. And then the Trump White House, the Trump FCC, is helping Fox News, which is in trouble, by getting rid of the U.S. attorney for the Southern District, who's looking into these allegations, I think, and by loosening up even more these FCC Federal Communications Commission restrictions on TV stations and so forth. I mean, you asked me about Roy Cohn. So Roy was my father's cousin, and I'm fascinated by what he taught me about power, about exchanges of favors. It's not always about the money on the surface. It's often about what can happen years from now. Robert Murdoch knows how to play the long game. He does a favor for somebody and it pays off in ways we don't even know years later. Is it case closed on Rupert Murdoch? Was he really a Chinese asset all along? Not by a long shot. So you'll have to join us on the next Spy Murdoch when our investigation takes us back to 1983. David L. Marcus is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and author who's covered global events, education, politics, and of course, Roy Cohen's Last Year Alive. He also coaches teens on how to get into their dream schools. You can find his work at davemarcus.com. That's davemarcus.com. The next Spy Murdoch will be available exclusively at patreon.com forward slash narrative or our premium YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash at narrative TV. Membership starts at $5 a month. Every minute of narrative's reporting Every story that we break is made possible by our patrons. You too can become a patron by joining at patreon.com forward slash narrative. Narrative, where truth lives. One day you'll tell the story of autocrats, crooks, and kings who came for our freedom. A story of citizens who stood up to tyranny and won. The people prevailed and renewed an old vow to a more perfect union. And that was just the beginning. The story continues. Narrative, where truth lives.